Well, please join me now in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, in just a few moments, we'll pick up together in verse 17. But let me ask you this. What role does fear play in your life? You know, my life, I want to be fearless. In fact, I'll arrange things so that I don't have times of fear in my life. I'll try to prep like that. But even with all that, there'll be moments when fear is brought to me. And I've had two occasions in the last two weeks with spiders that have brought fear suddenly to me. One of them was just in this hallway, this main hallway here. I think it was last week walking down the hall. The lights were off. I could see fine, but not fine enough because I bumped into a spider web. Don't you love that feeling? And your first thought is, where is it, right? So I bumped into it. No big deal. I just started brushing my head a little bit. Just kept walking down the hallway. When I hit my second spider web in the same hall. And that when I felt the substance of some spider. And so forgetting that I was wearing glasses, I took a swipe at my face and off fly the glasses down the hall. Picked up the glasses. They weren't hurt. Looked for the spider. Killed it. Fear gone. But then in my very own home, just a couple of days ago, in my own den, Joy's on one couch, I'm on the other couch, and Lauren is beside me. And uh, Joy then sent me a spider. She didn't announce ahead of time, Jim, I'm about to send a spider onto your lap. I saw her, this is how I went down, I saw her flinch where she was, but there was no time to find out, hey dear, what is that? She flicked something. Now, she thought she was flicking it to the floor. A spider had come down on her. And so she flicks it, and I just suddenly feel something bounce off my hand onto my lap. I look down, and it's on. This, this spider has substance to it, and it's moving around on me. Well, I'm in a reclining sofa, so I have to get up. And so I'm getting back to my feet. And then Joyce says something impossible. She said, stand still, stand still. Like, how do you stand still? She says, it's on you, stand still. Well, I did my best and then she got it from my pants leg and she killed it. But I don't like moments like that. I try to avoid moments of fear like that. 20 seconds of panic. But the Bible's going to tell us there is a type of fear that we must have. A, a kind of fear that repeatedly in the scriptures we're commanded to have. And here's an occasion of that here in 1 Peter 1 verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, here it is, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter has been writing to Christians about their status on the earth as exiles, that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And this earth in its present condition is not our home. And he's been talking to us about how we are to live as exiles on the earth. And here's a reminder, we're to live as exile, exiles with fear, fearing God. Verse 17 again, hear it again. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile. So the question, fear what? And by our context here, we know Peter's referring to our fear of God. Now, remember what we just saw in verses 13 through 16. We considered these last time. Peter's talking to these believers in the Roman Empire, first century. He tells them, prepare your minds for action. He told them also, set your hope fully on Christ and on Christ's return. And then this, he said, you need to walk in holiness. So, so what do I do? Living on an earth as an exile, what do you do? Walk in holiness. Remember this, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy 
for I'm holy. And so he continues this thought now in verse 17, and he says, you need to have an appropriate fear of God to walk out this holiness. We might summarize it this way, conduct yourself in holiness by conducting yourself in the fear of God. Now, I want to call your attention to two words in this text as we get going here. And the first word is father. And then in a moment, I want you to notice that word judge. But here, we're to fear God because he is our father. So through faith in Jesus Christ, if you are among the believers in the room, if you're among the believers watching from home, through faith in Jesus, you have become a child of God. Imagine this. You get to call God father. In love, he has adopted you into his family. And this is a privilege and honor truly beyond words, isn't it? That you can know God personally, but not just know about him. You can know him personally in a father-child type of relationship. This is very personal, and aren't you glad? It's very completely eternal, and there's no relationship like it. So we have then a relationship with a father that Peter reminds us needs to involve fear. Now, somebody might say, that's incompatible. How can you have a good father and fear at the same time? Well, let me ask, is that incompatible? No, that is not incompatible. To know that you are loved by God, but also have appropriate fear, that's very much in harmony. Remember, the Bible tells us that God is our father and that he disciplines those that he loves. And so we have that type of fear of our God, who is our father. Now, my parents divorced when I was four, and so I would see my dad every other weekend. That was the arrangement. And when I visited my dad, it was always a pleasant time, but that's not where I lived. I always felt like I'm a guest in that home, even with a, with a good dad. I'm a guest there, but I, I lived at home with my mother. And so when discipline was needed in my life, and I know it's a shock, there were those occasions when I needed discipline. Uh, my mom did that. She was great. She would give that warning, but when I did not heed the warning, there would be discipline. And, and really, in fairness to my mom, uh, looking back, I don't remember a time that I was unjustly disciplined. And it was always measured. It was not in a rage. But here's how my mother disciplined me. It was with a long plastic stirring spoon or with a long plastic spatula. And so if I did not heed the warnings about my behavior... I knew what would happen. And right now in my mind, in my memory, I can still, still hear that kitchen drawer sliding open when she pulled it. I can still hear it. And then there was a second sound, her rustling for the plastic utensils. I'm grateful she moved past the metal. I can hear the metal jingling. She didn't use the metal utensils. It was the plastic Kool-Aid stirring spoon or the spatula. She would get it. And then I would hear these words, turn around, turn around. That's an impossible thing to do too. By nature, you're like, I don't, I don't want to turn around. I know what's about to happen. Then these words, once I turn around, you know what it is, what? Move your hands. You ever been there? Like I would turn around, but I'm still clutching for it. Move, move your hands. And then I would get what I really always deserved. She didn't leave bruises. It wasn't, again, it wasn't in, it wasn't in a rage. It was always composed, but she was sending a message, right? And a good message. And it was a deterrent to future disobedience when I was thinking clearly. And, uh, and that is that, that mom's the authority here. 
And I can't transgress what she's telling me to do. There's a cost there. And so that's an appropriate fear. So my mother loved me. I never questioned that. Not in those moments. By the way, it didn't make me violent. I didn't turn around striking other people. It just was right the way she handled that. And so in our parenting, just a reminder, we must also, if we love our children, discipline them. And you can use whatever methods you feel good about, whether you spank or use timeouts, or whether as they get older, you ground their phone or take away their keys. But we love our children when we establish there are boundaries here. You can't just do anything that you please and things go well. We're, we're wanting to help them. So we calmly, in composed ways, establish and maintain our God-given authority because we love our children. Now, we're doing something wrong in our parenting if our children are terrified of us. But we're also doing something wrong in our parenting if our children just so easily disregard whatever we say. And so God, though, is our ultimate example of a perfect father in heaven who loves us. What could he do more to display his love for us? But also says that he disciplines those that he loves. Now, we talked about it a, a bit last week. How does God discipline his children? How does he discipline us? Well, he can do it in one of two directions. On the one hand, when we sin and we get stubborn in our sin, we should expect that God is going to withhold some blessing from us. So I can imagine that'd be reasonable, right? God could be thinking, you know, I was, I was about to do this for you, but because you have now rejected me and you're going in on your own right now, I, I will cannot and will not bring you that blessing that I was wanting to give you. Sometimes it's experienced this way. Just you get into disobedience and God withholds his joy from you. You start to feel miserable in your sin. That's a loving God, right? Not wanting you to continue in the foolishness. He'll begin to cause you to feel disturbed within you. I call it crushing conviction at times, where you just must, if you're one of his children, I don't want that. I must have God. I don't, I don't want that. So God can withhold blessing from you, even his peace, a sense of his presence. But also God can apply discomfort to your life. What my mom was trying to send the message with that, with that very reasonable spank on the bottom. Uh, God can bring difficulty in your life. Now, you're already going to have difficulties. We're on a sin-cursed earth. Every time you experience discomfort, it's not God disciplining you. I don't want to invite more into my life, but that's reasonable that if I get stubborn in my sin, that God can bring some discomfort. Same idea to bring correction, to bring me back to my senses, that I might walk with him in the joy of intimacy with him. So, so we fear God during this time of exile as our loving father who can discipline us. But notice Peter gives us another reason why we should fear God in this healthy sense. And it's because he's our judge. Notice verse 17 again. And if you call on him as father... Here it is, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So our heavenly father is also our judge. He has created us through Jesus. He has saved us if you're among the believers. And someday he will judge us. Now, of course, for the believer in Christ, this judgment that we're going to experience is not to determine heaven or hell. That's already been determined because of your faith in Jesus you have been saved. Peter speaks of it this way. You have been born again. You have experienced the salvation of your souls. So in what sense will the Christian be judged? The unbelievers will be at a great white throne of judgment and hell will be the sentence there. Believers won't be there for that one. So, but it says in the scriptures, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What will our judgment be like? Well, we will be evaluated in that day. This judgment that the Christian will experience will be for the purpose of rewarding faithfulness or not, where he looks at our deeds, right? Saved by grace, only by grace, but our deeds will be evaluated. So imagine with me that moment. We're just talking about reasons why we fear God. Imagine that moment 
in the future where you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, your Savior. And you are going to be thoroughly evaluated. How about this? The use of your time being evaluated by your Savior. How did you use these hours and days that I gave you? Or your use of spiritual gifts. God has given you at least one spiritual gift. What did you do with that spiritual gift that I gave you in the body and in the world? How about this one? Your use of money. All that money he's placed in your hands and through your bank accounts. How did you use the resources that I, I lent to you during your time on the earth? Your use of words. How did you speak during your time on the earth? Did you speak the way I taught you in my word to speak? Your faithfulness will be evaluated. Your unfaithfulness will be evaluated. Your obedience will be evaluated. Your disobedience will be evaluated. That should rightly cause you a sense of awe. That day is coming. That should cause you to be sober-minded. Remember last time, gird up the loins of your minds for action, being sober-minded. You want to be sober-minded, shaken out of silly thinking? Is it, oh, this life will culminate in a moment of evaluation before the Savior who loved me gave his life. I know I'm saved and secure forever. Heaven is secured. I know that, but still I do not want to be ashamed in that moment of evaluation. But it's not just a future judgment that's in view here. Even, even now, we are walking in a way that matters, and we are being evaluated even now. God can bring discipline now, even before those moments later. We see some dramatic examples in the Bible. In the book of Acts, we read about Ananias, Ananias and his wife Sapphira, who lied to the church. They lied to God, lied to the Holy Spirit, and God chose to take their lives there in their church. God's so concerned about the purity of his early church. Or Paul writing to the Corinthians about all the dysfunctions in the church at Corinth, but how they abused the Lord's Supper and how they were, they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner that Paul said, some of you, because of that, have become sick and some of you have gone to sleep, meaning some have died. And so our loving God is a God who disciplines. So now having then a biblically informed relationship with God, we can manage all this together. So, so we can say this, I, I love, love, love God because he first loved me, eternally secure. We can speak that way, but I also fear him. I don't take disobedience to him lightly. That's if we have a biblically informed relationship with God. Now notice here, he says he judges, and here's a key word, impartially. He judges impartially. Now some people get too cozy with God. They begin to shape their view and relationship with God based on their emotions. And so they start looking at God as being very permissive to them. So I love God and God loves me. And you know, he's not so really, he's not really worried about my behavior. I mean, because I've been saved by grace and I just, just walk this walk and, and he, yeah, there's some things that I do that aren't biblical and that the Bible calls sin, but God and I, we're so close. He's cool with that. No, no, notice what he says here. He judges impartially. You're thinking wrongly if you think God and I have a special understanding here where some of the Bible doesn't really apply to me and my behavior. You're not thinking clearly. You don't have the right fear of God that you should have. He judges impartially. Now, why is this fear of God so important during this exile that Peter has been describing to us? It's because you're either going to fear God or you're going to fear people. And you and I feel that pressure all the time. You're either going to displease God or you're going to displease 
the culture. You're either going to conform to this world or you're going to conform to God and his word. So you're going to be tempted to fear men and disregard God. That's the temptation of daily life, right? So in your mind now, you're remembering, okay, there is a time of ultimate evaluation at the end of this life that I, that I would like to be a time of celebration and not, oh, I'm ashamed, I blew it. And so we got that. But in the daily temptations you face and pressure from the world around you, you're more often thinking about what will the world do to me if I don't fear them? So if I fear God, these people are going to be angry at me. If I don't knuckle under and conform to what they're demanding, listen, they're, they're coming for me. And so we know we live in a cancel culture. We know that it could cost us in our careers. We know we could lose friends if we fear God and not the friends. We know there's name calling coming in and stigma attached to being a biblical disciple in these days. And in many parts of the world, there's imprisonment for Christ. And in many parts of the world, still martyrdom for Christ. And so here's a question in light of that. As an exile on the earth, you, whom will you fear? Will you fear God or men? Be sober-minded about that. So anticipating the future, I want to ask you to evaluate whom will you be glad that you feared? Let's, let's, we're going to go to eternity in a second. But 10 years from now, in 10 years from now, whom will you be glad that you feared? In 10 years, will you think, man, I am so glad I feared my peers. I'm so glad I feared this this loud culture. I'm so glad I didn't fear God. You think in 10 years you'll be glad about that choice? But let's go on out 10,000 years, just a fraction of eternity to come. In 10,000 years, will you be glad you feared mere men? Or will you be glad, oh, I'm so glad, Lord. When I made that choice, I feared and followed you. No matter what it costs me, I'm so glad I didn't cave during my brief stay on the earth. I'm so glad, Lord. So we've got to be clear as exiles on the earth whom we fear. It must be Christ. It must be Christ alone. So I size this up often in my own life. I think I've shared with you before that I have my time of reading in the word daily. And this morning it was in Jeremiah. And then I have some other scriptures that I often look at most days of the week. And among those scriptures I look at when I pivot into prayer, just to remind me, because I need it, is Galatians 1.10 is one, and then Mark 8.34 and following next. But listen to, listen to Galatians 1.10 and why this would be so helpful in determining whom I'm going to fear. Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So helpful. And then Jesus' words in Mark 8, 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now listen to this. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So each day is a choice for us. Will I fear and follow God or will I fear and follow my peers, fear and follow this loud culture? I urge you, pull aside with the Lord every day. 
Open up that Bible and hear God speak to you. Surrender to him and him only every day. Clarify who it is that you're going to follow in that day. See it. He says, be holy as I am holy. See it. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile. So fear God. That's a motivation for this holy walk we've been called to. But not only that, we're motivated, motivated by this. Appreciate the price that Jesus paid for you. Appreciate the price that Jesus paid for you. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you hear the two motivations for us to walk out this walk of faithfulness, holiness that we've been called to even in a world of opposition? The fear of God, this evaluation that's coming and the discipline that our loving God brings, but also being in awe of the love of God, that God was willing to pay such a high price to have us in his family. Who has loved you more than Jesus? Who is better than Jesus that you would follow them over God? And do you hear the motivation of that? Now, what does it mean that we've been ransomed? The Greek word here can be translated ransomed or as the New American Standard Bible uses the word redeemed. Here's what the word means. To rescue, to ransom, to set free, to liberate from an oppressive condition, set free by paying a ransom. So Jesus' death accomplished a number of wonderful things. First of all, it saved us from condemnation to come. Yes, an evaluation at the end of this life, some reward, however God chooses to do that. But we're not going to hell if we've trusted Jesus because Jesus has saved us from that judgment. So we're saved, but we're also freed when we trusted in Jesus. Jesus' death, if we believed in him, has freed us from bondage to sin. And the New Testament frequently talks about that aspect of our salvation. Places like Matthew 20, verse 28, when Jesus said, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, here it is, as a ransom for many. Or Romans 6, 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Or how about Galatians 4, where it says, God sent forth his son, Born of a woman, born under the law, here it is, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as son. So what was the price that Jesus was willing to pay to ransom you, to free you? The scripture says it's his blood. Can you imagine it? We were ransomed with his blood. With his blood, he bought us out of slavery to sin and death. He paid a price higher than all the gold and silver in the world. The scripture says he gave his precious blood. Oh, we should be awed by that. Now, I know what it's like to be able to live your life and just say the words, Jesus died for us. When I was a lost church kid going to church reluctantly all those years, I could have said with a yawn, Jesus died for me. Could have said that. No awe, no joy no appreciation. It's just information. Jesus died. Listen, don't let that happen to you. Think about how stunning are these words that Jesus purchased you out of sin and death with his own blood. Please hear with fresh ears verses like this. Ephesians 1, 7. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Hear that one again. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Amazing. Or how about Romans 3 famously says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But listen now, it continues. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Then Acts 20 verse 28 speaks about caring for the church, which he obtained with his own blood. So this reference to blood that Jesus spilled for us takes our minds back to the old covenant and that old covenant sacrificial system. And you remember in those, in those Old Testament sacrifices, the animal had to be without blemish. It had to be a pure animal. They weren't allowed to bring in, well, here's a diseased animal that I have no use for. Let me just give it to God. That was not a worthy sacrifice. Had to be pure. And here's Jesus, the ultimate lamb. All of those millions of animal sacrifices before have their fulfillment in Jesus who would come and be the perfect lamb who would take away the sins of the world. So please hear this truth. Let it sink into your mind that Jesus gave his blood for you to ransom you, to, to redeem you to himself. That should tell us several things. Doesn't it tell you something about the seriousness of sin? That that was necessary to bring your cleansing. That was necessary to purchase you out of the slavery to sin. This says something about sin. It is so serious. It is horrible. But it also says something about the greatness of God's love, right? That God would be willing to pay such a price for us. It says something also about the mercy of God, doesn't it? That God looked at sinners, rebels like all of us, people who had rejected him. And he was willing to pay this price, spill precious blood of Jesus for rebels like us. We deserve condemnation. But this is the mercy and the love of God that he would do this. But hear this as well. The fact that Jesus gave his blood to redeem you, to ransom you, means that any ongoing sin is incompatible with knowing and following how could a person say, I have been redeemed out of my life of sin and I intend to keep on living this life of sin? That is completely incompatible when you think about, yes, the fear of God and his discipline, but the love of God that he would pay such a high price for you to get you out of that life of sin. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from, catch that, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Peter says, you've been ransomed out of something into something new. You've been ransomed out of your old, lost, empty life. How could we possibly return to the old life we had before Christ when Christ was willing to pour out his blood for us? And feudal is the word Peter uses here. Isn't that a perfect word to describe what our lives were like before Jesus came in to us? Our lives before Christ were futile. They were empty lives apart from Christ, pointless lives apart from Christ, worthless lives apart from Christ. And this is interesting here. He says, where did you get that feudal life from? You inherited that feudal, worthless life from your forefathers. And many people would say, that's your testimony. You had decent parents, but they taught you to live an empty life. Maybe you had a parent and they just taught you, here's life. Here's life, son or daughter. Just eat, work, sleep, get some entertainment. That's life. Eat, work, 
sleep, get some entertainment, and just do it over and again. That's life. That is a futile life that maybe you learned from your forefathers. Maybe your parents told you, no, no, seek the good life. Get a good education, get a good career, eat good food, and go on good vacations. There's your life right there, son or daughter. That's a futile life. Or maybe you've inherited a futile life from the culture around you, a culture that tells you that you live for yourself. Nothing is wrong. Do anything you want. Chase your pleasure. It's all about you. Follow your heart. Follow your lusts. You and I have been saved out of that. That is our before Christ years. Now we've been saved from that. Remember verse 14? Peter speaks of the passions of your former ignorance. We used to be ignorant. We used to be slaves of sin. But Jesus has changed all that by pouring out his blood for us. And it changes the whole direction of our lives. It's inconceivable that we would live a life back in the sin. He, we, we've been called to holiness. What if you worked for a bad, bad company? And what if you had a horrible boss at a very bad company? And then you got the opportunity to work for a wonderful company with a wonderful boss. And maybe in your old job, you used to wear a uniform. How many of you would want to keep wearing the uniform from the terrible company and the terrible boss when you have a new job? No, if possible, you'd like to burn it all. You wouldn't even want to wear the hat from the old company. I've been set free from that. I, I don't want anything to do with the past that I came from. I'm so glad to be in the new. That's us coming to Christ, leaving the old feudal life behind. I've been following these stories out of Nigeria lately about how these armed gunmen will come into these schools out in the countryside and kidnap children. Not long ago, 39 students, I think it was on yeah, March 11th, 39 students were abducted and taken away. And they were away from their families for two months before they were ransomed. Ransoms were paid and these children came home, these, these young adults came home. And you can go to Reuters News and watch it. It's so, so wonderful. You see the, the jubilation. Here's the headline. Tears and singing as abducted Nigerian students return to parents. Oh, it's so beautiful to watch them celebrate being free because during the two months, they were beaten and tortured. They were fed only one time a day. They could only contact their parents to beg for ransom to be set free. But listen, think about those 39 students. Thank the Lord now back with their families. Would any of them think, you know what? I think I want to go back and live like I'm in bondage anymore, like I, like I once was. I think that was a pretty good life there, being beaten and eating once a day. Nobody would do that. And when you think about what Jesus has done for you, plucking you out of, out of the bondage to sin and giving you the gift of everlasting life, inconceivable that we would walk in anything other than the holy walk that he's called us to. We don't have a futile life anymore. We have purpose. We have worth. We belong to the family of God. We are part of his eternal kingdom and God has given us a life of meaning because we're a part of his mission to take his gospel all around the world. And because these things are true, you and I next should keep walking in faith and in the hope of God. And we'll conclude with these verses. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Christian, keep your eyes, your heart on Christ. Never Never take for granted the sacrifice that was made for you. I love here how Peter never moves past the gospel message. He comes right back to it. Everything he's teaching is coming from this gospel message. The eternal plan of God. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. 
He's talking about Jesus, of course, Jesus being the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity who eternally exists with the spirit and with the father. And he was known before the foundation of the world, even as the savior of the world. This is stunning. This was plan A for God. It wasn't that things went differently than God anticipated and he had to come up with a way to have a savior before he ever created the world. Before the first human beings were placed in the garden, Jesus, before all that, known to be the savior of the world. This was the original plan of God for our sakes that Jesus would come and would save us. He would bring us to faith and save us and flood us with faith and hope. And you and I get to walk in that faith and hope, even awaiting his return. So this question, are your faith and hope in Jesus? Have you turned from all else and put your faith and your hope in Jesus? Our hope should be in no other one, no other direction than Jesus. He is the Savior. He gave his body and blood for you. And so how, somebody might say, how might I do that? How might I put my faith in Jesus? Well, it begins with this. Would you repent of your sin? Today, would you acknowledge, use these words, I have been living a futile, empty, pointless life. I think it's important to own it. That's what confession means. I confess, I agree with God. I have been on the wrong track, pointless, futile life. I need to turn off of that. I want off of that road. And then now your next move, at the same moment as you turn from that, put your faith in Jesus. Jesus, you, you were willing to give your blood for me. You redeem me with your blood. You save me from the condemnation I deserve. I trust only in you, Jesus. Call on Jesus to save you. And then your next move, continue in faith. You're saved by faith in him. Now continue in faith in the fear of your good God. Let's pray together.